0: Good morning. Can everybody hear me? Well, as you know, we're in a study of chapter 5 of the book of John, of the gospel of John. And in this chapter, it began with Jesus performing a miracle in healing a man who had been paralyzed almost 40 years, a paralytic. He did it on the Sabbath, as we've seen, and the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders... We're very offended at that because they decided that it violated their interpretation of the Sabbath. They didn't actually violate the Sabbath because, of course, it's okay to heal on the Sabbath. And, of course, it's okay for God to work on any day. And this is what Jesus will say to them. The reason it's okay, it was okay for me to heal on the Sabbath. He could have said, you're wrong in your interpretation of the Sabbath, But his objective was not to teach them how they were misinterpreting the law. His objective was to teach them that he was and is God in the flesh. And so he takes this as an opportunity to say, the reason it was okay for me to kill on the Sabbath is because I'm God. And God is always working. God even worked on the seventh day, right? You know, in Genesis, it says he rested on the seventh day. Well, he rested from his creative acts, from creating, but he didn't rest from, as we saw this morning in the 930, he didn't rest... From maintaining his creation. From keeping the planet in its course. And all of the planets and all of the stars. And Adam's heartbeat and and Eve's heartbeat. All of that. And so Jesus healed the paralytic. And he did it on the Sabbath. He claims to be God. That's the reason why he said it was okay for me to heal on the Sabbath. And now there's a second indictment against him. Blasphemy. Because the Jewish religious leaders say, you're not God, you're claiming to be God, you're not God, and therefore that's blasphemy. So this is the second count of the indictment before, uh, that they are making of Jesus, two counts. One is violation of the Sabbath, which is a violation of the Mosaic Law, if he really had violated it, which he didn't. And the second is blasphemy, another violation of the Mosaic Law. Both of those are capital offenses. Both of those, if they're true, demand the death penalty under the law of of Moses. In response to their claim, he then makes ten assertions of his deity. Because he wants them to know as much as they crave to kill him, he wants them to know that he loves them. And he wants them to know that there is a way out of their eternal, the eternal damnation that they are under, which is the the condemnation that we are all under. We're all born rebels were actually conceived sinners, David says. And so Jesus loves this crowd that hates him. And so he says, we've studied this so far, this is just by way of review this morning, he makes 10 claims to deity in John chapter 5, equating himself with the Father, saying, I have perfect unity with the Father. I am not the Father the Father's not the Son, the Son's not the Father, the Father is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the, 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 the Father, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Son. These are three separate persons in the triune God, three separate persons. But we say that God is one because they are of perfect unity, that they always act in unity. And so Jesus has made ten claims to deity so far to this crowd that is accusing him of blasphemy because he is. Said that he was equal with God. And so Jesus, we saw last time, shifted from his ten claims of deity to the need for evidence. We saw verse 31 last time, which said, If Jesus said, If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. He's not saying, Don't trust what I say. He's saying, The nature of my claims. Demand additional evidence. Somebody walks up to you and says, I'm God in the flesh. I'm equal with God. Your radar should go up and say, ding, 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 ding. We have a problem here. You have a problem. Right? Because the claim, I'm equal with God, demands additional evidence than the words. That's what Jesus is saying. My claims are of such a nature that they cry out for additional evidence. I have equated myself with the Father. And so guess what the Father does, Jesus says. The Father presents evidence that substantiates that I am equal with the Father. And so last time, Jesus began with a list of witnesses. He claims deity. He claims to be God ten times. And he uses the word testify or testimony ten times to validate his ten claims. To be God in the flesh. Last time, Jesus spoke of two witnesses. Today we'll see more. The two witnesses that Jesus spoke of last time are John the Baptist, sent by the Father. John the Baptist testified that Jesus is God in the flesh and that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, which is to say Jesus is the only access to God. John the Baptist was the first witness that Jesus mentioned. The second witness that Jesus mentioned was the works, the very works that Jesus does that the Father gave Jesus to do. Because the Father's presenting all these witnesses. All these witnesses are of the Father. Jesus' works are tied to his claims of deity. Right? Many people did works. Many people, ra- well, many people did works. Not many people raised others from the dead, but certainly a number of people raised, raised people from the dead before Jesus. In addition to Jesus, Elijah, Elisha, they raised people from the dead. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. We saw last time. Jesus raised somebody from the dead. Elijah raised somebody from the dead. Elisha raised somebody from the dead. Moses did, did miracles. Peter did miracles. Samuel did miracles. Jesus did miracles. What's the difference? Why the difference? The difference between all those people who did miracles, Moses, Samuel, Peter, Elijah, Elisha, and Jesus, is that Jesus alone claimed to be God in the flesh. They did the miracles, Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Peter, Paul, all the others, they did the miracles to validate their claim. Right? The apostles did miracles to validate that they were sent by Jesus that they had the authority to speak on behalf of Jesus, the the apostles. Jesus does his miracles to validate his claim. What's his claim? His claim is, I'm God in the flesh. That's the difference between these groups of people who did the miracles, all the other groups, and the one and only of God, the monogenes of God. And so, two witnesses we saw last time. John the Baptist witness number 1 sent by the father witness number 2 jesus's works that the father set in advance for jesus to do in fulfillment of the scripture because jesus doesn't just do miracles willy-nilly hey i'm going to do this i'm going to do oh no that's yeah i'm no jesus does miracles that are the extreme precision of fulfillment of the prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures, that Messiah would do. Because Jesus presents evidence. He validates who He is, His incredible claim to be God in the flesh. Today we're going to see two more witnesses who testify about who He is. Look at verse 37. Jesus says, And the Father who sent me, He has testified of me. You have neither heard His voice at any time Nor seen his form. You do not believe his word abiding, you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. Here we see the third witness, which is the Father himself. The reason the Father's got to send the witnesses is because Jesus is equating himself with the Father, and Jesus says, I come to speak on behalf of the Father. I come to do the actions of the Father. So the Father validates the one who is claiming to be acting for the Father. The Father sends John the Baptist. The Father establishes the works that Jesus will do. And the Father himself testifies about who Jesus is. You see, the religious leaders here are judging Jesus. right? They've judged him to be a criminal, a violator of the Sabbath, and a violator of the law with respect to blasphemy they have judged him as a criminal what they don't realize is that they themselves are being judged they're the ones being judged because they are standing before to use abraham's phrase from genesis 18:25 they are standing before the judge of all the earth in the flesh and so jesus is indicting them on three counts there are three counts For Jesus' indictment, they have an indictment of Jesus, you violated the Sabbath, and you claimed to be God blasphemy. And Jesus says, you want to talk about indictments? Let's talk about an indictment. Three counts to the indictment that we just saw Jesus issue to them in verses 37 and 38. Count number one, you have never heard the Father's voice. Count number two, you have never seen the Father's Form. Count number three, you do not have the Father's words in you. All of these counts ultimately come from the core crime, which is unbelief. Unbelief produces all the other sins. That's our real problem. It's our unbelief. This is the problem of the religious leaders unbelief in verse 37 jesus says that the father has testified about me what does he mean by that what does he mean by the father has testified about me what's the testimony that jesus is talking about that the father gives with respect to jesus is jesus referring to the audible words that were heard by the people who were standing around when john the baptist baptized jesus you remember in matthew 3 17 They heard from the heavens, it says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father spoke from the heavens. They heard the voice when John the Baptist was baptizing Jesus. Is that what Jesus is talking about when he says that the Father has testified about me? I don't think so. I don't think so because the apostle who wrote the book that we're studying right now, the apostle John who wrote the Gospel of John doesn't record that event doesn't record the event of Jesus' baptism. That's recorded in the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but not this one. I don't think that's the focus that we have here. Is Jesus referring to the Father's testimony that the Father provided through John the Baptist or through Jesus' works? Is that what Jesus is talking about when he says that the Father testifies about me? I don't think he's talking about that either because he just mentioned those. He's talking about something new. He's talking about something different, and I think the Greek grammar is helpful here in us understanding the testimony, this incredible point that Jesus is making that we can learn from and be edified from now. I think the grammar is important here. Jesus says in verse 37, The Father sent me. Right? It says, The Father who sent me. That's the aorist tense in the Greek. And the aorist tense in the Greek is a past tense. It's something that happened in the past, but it doesn't really tell you any time markers. It doesn't have any really a, kind of a fence around it in terms of when it happened. It just, it's in the past. He sent me. He who sent me. This is the aorist tense. But then Jesus uses another tense in the past tense. He says, he has testified of me. That's not the aorist tense, it's the perfect tense. We've seen the perfect tense before. The perfect tense in the Greek is a tense that says, that happened in the past, completed action. It's something that happened in the past, completed in the past, and it has ongoing effects. It's got ongoing results. The testimony that I think Jesus is referring to, that the Father is giving with respect to Jesus, is the testimony that the Father gave before Jesus ever came to this planet. Before the Father, you see, you see the two statements. He sent me, he has testified about me. He sent me, tense, he has testified about me, perfect tense. What Jesus is saying is that the Father has already issued the testimony about me before he ever sent me from heaven to be born from Mary to come as a baby and grow up as a man. That testimony that Jesus is referring to is testimony from the Old Testament. Before Jesus came, remember God is triune, God the, before God the Son came to be born of a woman, and before He grew up as a man standing before this crowd of religious leaders who crave His death, He's saying, the Father testified about Me before He even sent me. That's the completed action in the past that has ongoing results. Let me show you what I mean. Jesus is referring to the special revelation that the Father gave to Israel in the Old Testament. The special revelation when God spoke audibly to the Israelites. When God appeared in the form of Theophanies. To the Israelites. Remember, theophany is a physical manifestation of the invisible God. So when it says that Jacob wrestled with God, or the person that Jacob was wrestling with in the book of Genesis, it was a physical manifestation of God. It wasn't really God, it wasn't actually God, because God is spirit. He doesn't have flesh and bones and muscles to wrestle with, He's spirit but he presented himself as a theophany with a physical manifestation. Jesus is referring to the Old Testament where the Father testified and gave special revelation to Israel, where he spoke audibly to Israelites, where he presented his form in a theophany that they saw to Israelites, where he gave his word to Israelites and they weaved it into their hearts. Even more specifically, I think Jesus is referring to one particular Israelite, to Moses. That's why Jesus mentions Moses in verse 45. Look down at verse 45. And Do I need to change my Okay. In Exodus 33, verse 18, we have this description of Moses seeing the theophany. Many of you are familiar with this event. Let's just read it. Then Moses said, he's speaking to Yahweh, I pray you show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then in verse 21, Then Yahweh said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Jesus is indicting the religious leaders. He's condemning them. He's judging them. They think they're judging him. they judged him a criminal. But in fact, it is the reverse. He says, Moses saw the theophany. Moses saw the form of God, and he loved it, but I stand before you, the visible image of the invisible God, and you don't see me. You want to obliterate me. You want me not to exist. You want to kill me. You prefer that I didn't exist at all. Count number three. You do not have the Father's words. Shama Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Or I think the better way to say it is Shama Israel. Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad, because I think we should pronounce the name of God. That's what God said in Exodus three. Shama Yisrael, hear, O Israel, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh Echad, Yahweh alone, or you can say you can even uh, translate it as Yahweh is one. And then in verse 5 of Deuteronomy 6, you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Again, Jesus is judging and indicting the religious leaders. Moses weaved God's word into his heart and taught the people to weave God's word into their hearts. Jesus says, I speak the words of my Father and you hate my words, especially my words claiming that I'm deity, equating myself with the Father. Ultimately, this three-count indictment boils down to the last phrase of verse 38. Look at the last phrase of verse 38. For you do not believe him who sent me. That's a hati clause in the Greek. Hati is translated as our English word for, but it can also be translated as because. This is a result clause. In other words, the reason for these three counts of indictment against you is because you do not believe in me. Your unbelief in me. This is the timeless tragedy of humanity. Unbelief. This is the problem from generation to generation to generation. And this generation that Jesus is speaking to refuses to trust him to use the, the language of the old King James in, in the, the first chapter of John, he came into his own and his own received him not. This generation refused to trust Jesus as the prophesied Messiah, as the God-man, as the sin-bearer, bear, sin the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as the one who gives access to God and it will prove their demise. Jesus now calls the next witness to the witness stand. The scriptures themselves. Look at verse 39. Verse 39 reads like this. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify of me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Warren Worsby captures this passage well. When he says the Jewish scribes sought to know the word of God. But they did not know the God of the word. They thought that the act of studying and learning the Scriptures would bring them closer to God, would make them acceptable to God. They were serious students of the Word of God. They regularly opened up the Scriptures. They regularly studied the Scriptures. They regularly heard the Word taught in their place of worship. You see where I'm going? Jesus condemns them. He indicts them. Because they study the word. Why? I mean, that's what we do, right? Because their motivation. You must guard your thoughts at all costs. Guard your thoughts. It's their motivation that's the problem. They study the Word with the wrong motivation. They are serious students of the Word with the wrong motivation. They go to worship with the wrong motivation. And so it is not something that is pleasing to God. It is something that is an offense to God. If our study of the Word doesn't draw us to Him, if our study of the Word doesn't transform us into His image, then we're doing something wrong. We're approaching the study of the Word of God, perhaps with the wrong attitude. Many people come to church. Many people go to Bible studies. Many people study the Word for the wrong reason. Right? Some people study it because of tradition. My mama went to church, and my grandmama went to church, and my grandmama went to church. My great-grandma. And so I need to go to church. That's the wrong reason. That's the wrong reason. That's the wrong motivation to go to church. Some people study the Word because they feel like it's going to give them a little magic mojo. Right? They go to church because it's kind of like a lucky charm. Everything's going to be rosy because I went to church yesterday. It's going to be a great week because I went to church yesterday. No. That's the wrong motivation. Some people go to church. Some people study the Word of God Because they're prideful. Because they're self-righteous. Don't you know how much I know about the Bible? Don't you know how many doctrines I know? Did you realize that I'm a very godly person because I know so much about the Bible? Right? This is how the self-righteous mind works. This is how the prideful mind works. The one who goes to church, the one who studies the Word, because he wants you to know He's so knowledgeable, so knowledgeable about God's Word. This is the problem with the religious leaders that Jesus is speaking to. This is the motivation that they have, this prideful self-righteousness. And this is why he condemns them for their study of the Word. It's a very subtle thing. Some people study the Word and God says, I'm pleased with that. Some people go to church and God says, I'm pleased with that. Some people go to church and some people study the word and God says, nope. Nope. I'm not pleased with that. The difference is motivation. Because God knows your thoughts. God doesn't want your your motions. Just go through the motions. La, la, la. No. God... Seize your thoughts. He wants your heart. Remember what Jesus said? You're to love Him. You're to love God with your mind, with your whole person, with your soul, with your heart, with everything about you. And then your actions follow that. This is what is happening here in this Description, we are to study the word of God for the right reasons that we may know Christ, that we may be saved from our empty manner of life. Make no mistake. Our lives are empty without Christ. I mean, don't, don't take my word for it. It's 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 Peter's word, right? It's the apostle Peter in First Peter. He says we are not we were not saved. We were not saved through our own. Selfish, empty desires, let me just read it specifically in first Peter first Peter he makes this this kind of damning statement with respect to with respect to our view of our lives and and, and the emptiness of the life that the culture sells us. he says. You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your empty manner of life. Empty. Futile. That's the the concept of the Greek word there. Look, I'm not trying to offend you. Just being honest. Your life is empty and futile without God. You were not redeemed with perishable things such as silver and gold from your empty manner of life, but with precious blood as of a lamb spotless and unblemished, the, the blood of Christ. And so the reason we study the Word of God is so that we may know Christ, so that we may be saved from our empty manner of life, and so that we may bask in the largesse of His love. Boundless, limitless, free love. In verse 39, Jesus makes an incredible claim that the Scriptures themselves testify of Him When we see that in verse 39, we can't help but think of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. You remember this event of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. The context is that Jesus has been arrested, crucified, and resurrected. And two of his disciples, his followers, have heard that he's been resurrected, but they don't believe it. And so they're discouraged. They're sad, they're despondent over his death. Luke 24, verse 13, begins the account here. It reads like this. And behold, two of them were going that very day. The, ver- the day here is Sunday. It's Resurrection Sunday. Literally, Resurrection Sunday. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Jesus temporarily conceals his identity because because he's going to use the element of surprise to yank them out of their unbelief. Here's the, the painful reality. Even Jesus' own disciples, His own followers, didn't believe Him. Right? He said, I'm going to be resurrected on the third day. They don't believe it. They didn't believe it when He said it. These are, these are believers who have trusted in Him, but they didn't believe His claim that He was going to be resurrected. Not even His own followers believed it. We'll see that as these events unfold. By the way, the fact that Jesus conceals His identity, He prevents them from recognizing Him, it shows us something very interesting about the resurrection body. It shows us that the resurrection body is recognizable. In heaven, they're going to see you and say, That's John! Oh yeah, that's Susie! That's Alex! It's a recognizable body. It's the same body. It's just the molecules are remade. Jesus has flesh. He sits as a man at the right hand of the Father today, with flesh and bones, a skeletal system, a face, eyes, ears. It's just those are remade for space travel. Literally, right? In Acts 1, he ascends into the clouds as a man. He will return as a man. And so he has to conceal himself because he's going to use surprise to draw them out of their unbelief. Keep reading in verse 17. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? In other words, have you been living under a rock? Verse 19. And he said to them, What things? Who says God doesn't have a sense of humor? He says, what things? Jesus has been arrested, tortured, Crucified. Raised from the dead. He's paid for the sins of the world. Done checkmate on the devil. Defeated the devil on the cross. Been raised from the dead. Never to die again. Unlike any other human being. And he says, what things? I think the text is designed to make us chuckle. When we read that. Keep reading in verse 19. And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, in the sight of God and all the people. You see, they believe in him. They just didn't believe in his resurrection. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Let me rephrase something I just said. They believe in him, but as you see this description, they're almost questioning whether he's Messiah. Right? I mean, they're doubting. The Hebrew Scriptures prophesied that Messiah was going to redeem Israel, that Messiah would bring all this peace and prosperity, but he's dead. Jesus is dead. And that's why they're sad. Because they had all these high hopes that Jesus would fulfill all the promises of the Hebrew Scriptures of bringing prosperity and getting rid of the Romans who the Israelites lived under the boot of the Romans. But Jesus is dead. And that's why they're despondent. They're almost kind of questioning, I guess someone else has to come to fulfill the promises that that the Hebrew Scriptures prophesied that Messiah would do. So maybe they're believers. Maybe they're not. Keep reading verse 21. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day. It's Sunday. Jesus prophesied that he would be raised on the third day. Verse 21 says, Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying, That they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the woman also said. But him they did not see. You see what happened? These two disciples, these two followers of Jesus, received multiple witnesses about his resurrection. Jesus testified during his ministry, that he would be resurrected on the third day. The women testified that the tomb was empty. The angels testified that Jesus has been raised, had been raised from the dead. But despite this testimony, they don't believe. That's why they're sad. These two disciples suffer from the same problem that the religious leaders suffered from. They knew the word of God. They'd heard the word of God, but they didn't. Believe it. Keep reading verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart. That's a biting criticism from your Lord. He said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart. Why heart? Because the heart is the place of belief or unbelief. Slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? You see, the cross had to precede the crown. Messiah had to come and pay for the sins of the world before he could claim the world, reclaim it for his glory. Keep reading verse 27. Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. There it is. Talk about a Bible study. He gives them a course in Christology Christology is the study of Christ. He gives them a course in Christology from the Hebrew Scriptures. The Mosaic Law pointed to Jesus because the Mosaic Law cried out. It cried out for someone who could fulfill the law. Moses didn't fulfill it. David didn't fulfill it. Isaiah, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, none of them fulfilled it. And they knew it. They knew they were sinners. The law cried out for someone who was righteous, someone who could fulfill the righteous demands that God demands of us. The Mosaic law pointed to Jesus. The sacrificial system pointed to Jesus. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Aaronic priesthood pointed to Jesus. He's the high priest who intercedes for us. The book of Hebrews says, in the third heaven today as we speak, the covenants laid out in the Hebrew scriptures pointed to Jesus, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant. The prophets pointed to Jesus, the one whom they described as the suffering servant and the conquering king. The messianic titles pointed to Jesus, son of David, son of God, son of man, wonderful counselor, eternal father, prince of Peace, mighty God. The Old Testament pointed to Jesus, to his birth, to his ministry, to his words, to his works, to his suffering, to his death, to his resurrection, to his ascension, to his return, all of it. The Old Testament is like a finger pointing to the one. This is the audacious, incredible claim that Jesus makes for himself. Saying, the scriptures, God's written word points to me. Because the only scriptures that exist when he speaks these words are the Hebrew scriptures. Talk about an audacious claim. And he backs it up with evidence. Please turn back to John chapter 5. Let me mention one thing before we dive back into John chapter 5. If someone comes up to you and says, Today, now, I trust that Jesus has paid for my sins, has died for my sins, and is my access to heaven, but I don't believe that he was resurrected from the dead. They've got a problem. Because that's not the Jesus who is. The Jesus who is, to quote Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, is the one who died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried, and was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. They're believing in another Jesus if they don't believe in the Jesus who was raised from the dead. Because God raised Jesus from the dead to validate, as part of the validation, as part of the evidence, as part of the witnesses, testifying that Jesus was, in fact, and is, in fact, God in the flesh, the only Savior of the world. So if someone says that they believe that Jesus paid for their sins and is their access to heaven, but they don't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, I don't think they're saved. Because they're not believing in the Jesus who is. They're believing in a fictional, made-up Jesus. That's just kind of a a side note. I didn't want to fail to mention that. In John chapter 5, back in our passage, Jesus says to the religious leaders, despite the authority, and the power of all of these witnesses, you still don't believe. You refuse to believe in me. Look at verse 40. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Unwilling. In the end, unbelief is an issue of the will. God doesn't make people believe in him. He doesn't stick his finger in your brain, in your heart, and say... Light switch on, you're going to believe in me. And for them, light switch off, they're not going to believe in me. It's an issue of the will. Now, is God sovereign? Absolutely. Does Paul teach the doctrine of election? No question. In the book of Ephesians, the saints were called, elected, chosen, whatever word you want to use, before the foundation of the world. We'll say, you say, well, wait a second. Are we chosen... Or do we have the will, the free will to believe? Yes. It's both. To quote the, the, the classic work from Norm Geisler on the topic of election, we're chosen but free. Both. How exactly that works, I don't know. My little pea brain's too small to figure that one out. But I trust my master that he is a God of infinite love. And he doesn't make anybody believe or not believe. And yet at the same time, he's absolutely stubborn. Always has been, always will be. And for this group who are under indictment from the judge of all the earth, they are unwilling. That's why Jesus uses that phrase. Very, very important word that he is using there. Unwilling. You're not willing to come to me so that you may live. Those are the only two options. Either we exercise our will to come to Jesus with the empty hands of faith. You don't bring nothing to Jesus. You come to Him with your empty empty hands of faith and it's all Him. He gets all the praise, all the glory. You get zero, nada, nothing. He gets all the praise. Either you use your will to come to Him and He gives you life, which is a free gift. It's His gracious gift. You don't deserve it, you don't earn it. Or you use your will to not come to Him. And then you don't have life. Now, when, as we study in the book of John, when we see this phrase life or eternal life, we're not talking about quantity of life. Everybody's going to live forever. Everybody. Unbelievers will live forever. Just read the end of Revelation 20. Believers will live forever. Read Revelation 21, 22 stark contrast. The question is, where are you going to live forever? And with whom are you going to live forever? Are you going to live forever with the author of death, who Jesus described as a murderer from the beginning? Because he orchestrated the death of the first two human beings, the devil himself. You will live forever with the author of death, and his fallen angels in a place that Jesus describes as the outer darkness, as we saw last time, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, or as John describes as the place of torment, day and night forever, the lake of fire. You will reside there forever if you do not use your will, your free will, your volition to come to Jesus, the one who... Paid for our sins according to the scriptures. Was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. But on the other hand, if you use your will to come to him and trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life, then you will live forever in a place of unspeakable joy. We studied it at the 930. It's God's eternal kingdom in the presence of God. God has the monopoly on happiness. God has the monopoly on joy. It, it will be utterly impossible to live in the kingdom of God, which is where we're all going to live if we trust in Christ forever. It will be impossible to live there and not be happy. Because his essence exudes happiness and gladness and joy. Now, where there'll be gradations of happiness, I think there will be. Because there will be gradations of blessing. Those who lived their life squandering and frittering away the life that God give them, gave them here in this, in this life, living for self, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Hey, I, you know what, God, I'll see you in heaven. If that's your attitude, you're going to be happy. You, you can't lose your salvation. No, you can't. Because it's not dependent on you, it's dependent on God. But you could squander your, your eternal rewards. You can lose them. And I believe, if I understand Ephesians 2 correctly, God has already created the rewards. He's already designed them for us. And so the judgment seat of Christ for the believer, when you can lose, you're either going to lose your rewards that he's created in the past or receive them. But there will be shame for those who have lived for themselves, lived independent of God, and not submitting to the Lord through our lives. But for the others who obeyed Him, who sought to bring Him honor and glory with our thoughts, with our words, with our actions, that's going to be sweet. It's going to be rewards multifold. And happiness exponential. Like I said, everybody's going to be happy in heaven. But those who obeyed Him, who served Him, it's going to be, ex- it's going to be significantly more, ha- more happiness. Exponentially more happiness. Because the blessing, the rewards, are going to be more. If there's anybody here today who hasn't trusted Christ, today's the day. Today's the day. Don't wait. There's no reason to wait. Your eternal destiny hangs in the balance. And you have no lock on tomorrow. You might not have a tomorrow. You say, I'm young. Sure I do. There's no guarantee. The older we get, the more we realize there really isn't a guarantee. All you have to do is trust in Christ. What the Philippian jailer said to the Apostle Paul is, when he said, what do I have to do to be saved? The Apostle Paul said it very plainly, very directly, very clearly. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Whoa! That's too easy. You say that's too easy. You know why it's easy? It's because God loves you. Incredibly difficult and painful. Painful for him. Difficult for him as a man. As God, he can do anything. Limitless. But remember, Jesus is fully God, fully man. And he gave it all for you. He died for you. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We praise you for it. We ask that you transform us by it. Challenge us to obey you. Break us of our rebellion. Teach us to submit to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.